yeah, I kind of like to dive into shows like this, real like not formally. So welcome to Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm with my program director, Dr. Rachel Schmutz. Um, I've known you, I guess, almost two years now. Uh, yeah, probably... just about because of we met during recruitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly two years. Yeah, and you only knew it. me through like my CV and personal statement, mm-hmm. and we've been able to form a relationship. And I'm super stoked to uh, finally have you on the show. Thank you, thank you. I'm honored. So I guess in brief, um, can you tell us like how you, what your qualifications are to end up um, as a program director? But then I kind of want to get into like why you decided to do this and really dive into the meat of it. Like, where are you trained? Where are you went to medical school? All, all right, that. so you know, yeah. I'll give you like a little bio and then I sure. can tell you a little bit um, like the trajectory about how I landed in this role because I uh-huh. did not actually set out to be a program director uh-huh. and I think that I did set out to be an academics, but I didn't know what that looked like or what that meant when okay. I first started. So I went to UMDNJ School of Osteopathic Medicine, which is where we are now. Got oh, bought okay. out, yeah, so um, got bought out by Rowan um, okay. a couple of years ago. And there was a lot of shifting around, but it was University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. It was a mouthful. Um, and I um, I think I always wanted to do psychiatry, but I kind of fought the idea of it. Okay. Um, I thought, you know, I'd come into medicine and become a family medicine doctor like everybody else. But I have a background in um, biological psychology in college, and I have I worked for a psychiatrist for many years. So I kind of fought the the desire to go into it, but I really loved it so much when I hit my rotations, which is actually where you are now. I did uh-huh. my rotation with Dr. Yi oh, on okay. West Pavilion, oh, and Dr. Yeah. Ivanov was my resident. Oh, so, okay. So things come full circle. So um, I ended up doing my psychiatry training at Jefferson University Hospital in, in Philadelphia, and I did um, a consultation liaison psychiatry fellowship at Uni- University of Pennsylvania. Um, and it was really in that year where I fell in love, really I fell in love with academics and also women's mental health, which is my clinical, mm-hmm. my clinical expertise and, and passion. And so um, during that year, the way that, that I always liked teaching medical students, I always liked progressing through my residency and getting more residents, like under me, junior residents to teach, especially on the consult service, which is why I loved consults in general, mm-hmm. I always did. Um, and so I always like teaching, I always like mentoring, I always like guiding and helping. And then when I was a fellow, the way that the fellowship was structured is that you really were a junior attending, you weren't a PGY-5. Um, okay. you know, so the, the focus and the, the culture of that program was that you really, really stuck with the attendings and you did a lot of attending things, and which was a lot of mentorship, a lot of teaching. I ran a, a year-long journal club that was fairly advanced topics in consultation mm-hmm. liaison psychiatry. I did a lot of liaising with other teams. Um, and so I really, really, and I did a lot of teaching. I didn't have, like, it was really great because I didn't have to run my own service. I was with the service, and so most of my time was teaching and education. Okay. Um, and then, you know, fam, I really, there was a lot of family stuff going on, meaning we were growing our family yeah. at the time. So I actually, when I was in my residency, I had my first daughter in my third year. Uh-huh. And then I had my second daughter, I was pregnant with my second daughter through my fellowship. So when I wanted to look for employment, I wanted to be in an academic center. Um, but I also knew that I needed the flexibility and I wanted to work part-time at first to, you know, tend to my, my two young children at that time. There was a lot of support from that from our department, and our department chair actually kept in touch with me throughout training, okay. even though I left the institution. Just like every six months, he would like check in and see what I was up to. Um, so I pulled that string, and I said, you know, I want to come back, and I want to build a women's mental health program, and I want to teach, and and I came back, and I've been, you know, I've been here ever since. I've been here at Rowan um, for seven years. And um, it started out looking different. At what happened really is just opportunities sort of became available mm-hmm. the longer the time that I spent here. I started out, um, there was a vacancy in the pre, the, in the pre um, clerkship psychiatry course um, in our old curriculum, which was a, actually at the time, if you can believe it, was a one week psychiatry course and that's all the psychiatry oh, really? the students wow. got. That, yeah. So I talk a lot, I apologize. Um, and so I worked very hard on developing that and growing yeah. that. There were a tremendous, a lot of, a lot of gaps in that, as you can imagine. Um, mm-hmm. In one week, there was no formal education on substance use disorders. There was no formal education on eating disorders in, in there. So um, I grew that and built that, and then our school underwent curriculum reform, and I got involved in that, and I went from running what became a two-week 
psychiatry course in the classroom became a 10-week integrated organ system for brain and oh, behavior. Okay. Okay. And then, you know what they say, uh, especially in academics, is yeah. if you want something done, you give it to a busy person. Yeah. So more and more opportunities became available, and I saw them as means of merit. Like, you know, yeah. I, I, it was really nice to be recognized for my talents and for my skills and for my program development. Um, and I kept saying yes to things. And yeah. um, eventually I, I, um, I was um, asked to be the associate program director okay. for the residency in addition to other academic things with the medical students. And when a vacancy became available to become program director, it was sort of was a, natural, a natural progression up and I accepted that uh, offer. Doctor, our, de our department chair took me out to coffee one day at go. Starbucks to make the formal offer. And, um, you know, it was hard because I was going to have to transition from part-time to full-time at that point, and yeah. it was, it was, I felt like it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. I will tell you that over time, and I, and let me try to edit this song, self-edit here. I love working with medical students, but I really love working with residents. Okay. They're a captive audience, you know, uh -huh. they're already in the field that they're, of their desire, of exactly. their wants, and yeah. that we can really, you know, advance, you know, the knowledge and the skills and really hone some really, really specific specialties. And um, also you're just, the residents are a very willing audience and they mm -hmm. want to be the best psychiatrist they can be. They're already in, mm -hmm. so now, so there, there's a different motivation, there's a different level of maturity. And so once I got more involved in GME, I wanted to get more involved in GME. Yeah. So I think that answered your question. I think, I think so, <laughs> probably like my first three questions. But, you know, and it's part of why I, I think you're an amazing person and part of the why I also wanted to do this is um, as a means of like helping out our residency and like our future applicants and like because I do when I made you know my rounds a couple years ago applying to residency and I'm so happy I don't have to do that again. That, not <laughs> that, that is fun. a once in a lifetime um, thing. Yeah, yes. I, I don't envy these fourth year med students. But um, you know what what sets our program apart? I feel like is stuff that like you can't always immediately read or advertise on the website. And what I mean by this is the vast majority of the program directors I met had a plethora of gray hair and experience <laughs> and they were maybe towards the end of their career. And why, you know, our program is, you know, I, I, don't, I won't ask you how old you are or anything, but you're of course on maybe the younger end of your career. And what I, what I get excited about is um, I consider myself like a real idealist. Um, when it comes to psychiatry, maybe to a fault, but I do allow, like, I dream, you know, I think it even, like, feeds into my bipolar nature, like, I just have, like, these grandiose ideas of what psychiatry eventually could become. Mm -hmm. And so what I ask is, like, what are your idealistic versions of what a psych residency could be? You know, I know it's not uh, capable of getting there next year, but, you know, you might have 30, 40 years to develop this psych program. Like, what would you ideally mm. want a psych residency to look like? Well, I'll say in 30, 40 years, I definitely want to be retired. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I don't plan on being one of the one of the 80-year-old program Yeah, you directors. say that now. <laughs> I'll, I'll follow up in, in a couple decades, yeah. I'm pretty sure. But okay, you can. I, I'm happy to have you follow up okay. with, with me in a couple of decades. So, um, it's, it's hard to say because, um, and, and if anybody is listening to this and they're applying for programs, and Logan, you might speak to more, more of this about what your personal experience was looking at all these programs and like you, you alluded to it just now. Um, it really, I mean, it depends on the culture of the program. It depends mm. on the location of the program and the size of the program and the support that the program has from the, the university or the sponsoring institution and from the department and from the faculty and the staff. I can tell you that I, you know, I don't like to be complacent and I don't like to be bored. I am always mm -hmm. looking for, even if it's a minor improvement or a tweak to make something better and make it more meaningful, a, a meaningful learning experience for all of you, then I wanna do that. So even though there are many valuable things and ideal things that I think we do have in place right now, I'm always looking to make sure it's better for all of you. And there, mm -hmm. ha there has to be, a, there's always a way to change something and improve it. Um, as far as an ideal program, I think what makes a program ideal is not actually just the residents and the culture of the residents themselves, but the faculty buy-in. Mm -hmm. And I think that if they're, and I think this is something that we struggle with here, um, which is not unusual in other institutions as well, 
is to have enough faculty who are not only physically present, but emotionally invested in teaching the residents and mentoring the residents. And I don't just mean being present on service from seven to five, but I mean mm -hmm. also inviting residents to be part of their um, re ongoing research projects or scholarly activity or doing formal teaching rounds you know, from day mm -hmm. to day, something that's a little bit more structured. Um, you know, and it takes more faculty, I think, to do that regularly with every resident and have that resident, you know, each resident feel like the program is individualized to them than what the books usually say or even what the ACGME says. Mm -hmm. So um, I think having an invested and really interested, maximally interested faculty and having more faculty than we think we need would definitely mm -hmm. make this make any residency program more enriching and have that be consistent. Mm -hmm. It is completely normalized or normed, I guess I should say, that you will not love every rotation. Yeah. Like, and usually they're the non-psych rotations, but some of the psych rotations, like I remember very clearly from where I trained that there was one or two rotations that were notoriously not liked by residents, but for one reason or another, like funding and mm -hmm. um, and like where that funding comes from, like if that institution or if that ro rotation site pays for the resident to be there, then we have to be there. Mm -hmm. um, where we just kind of, you know, knew it wasn't going to be good and we kind of figured out other ways to learn or to bide our time until we moved on to the next thing. Nothing is perfect. Not every rotation is going to be enjoyable or meaningful all the time. But in a, if you're asking me ideal, that mm -hmm. would be the ideal. Mm -hmm. And that could be, I think, produced by having more present and a larger faculty. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I mean, okay. and I would counter from my perspective as a resident, mm -hmm. I think an ideal residency is significantly more residents too, maybe yes. with the same workload, you know, mm -hmm. so so increased faculty, but also increased residents because, um, you know, we work hard here and I imagine most residencies work hard here. Um, and I always think about how the learning experience could potentially just be different um, if there was, you know, double or triple the amount of residents around. So that's always, that's, that's you are a dreamer, double mm -hmm. or triple. <laughs> yeah, I dream big here. But, yeah. but no, that is actually a very, very good point is that I'm always trying to figure out um, sort of, and I, and it's different for each resident, but there might be average over time, sort of what the, what the limit of workload is that tips the balance to having it being a good or a not a good learning experience. Mm -hmm. We always, you know, the idea is to create enough workload for you to develop skill and repeat things over and over again so that you can really hone mm -hmm. your interview skills and your diagnostic skills and your therapeutic skills. But at what point does it tip over and become too much and contribute mm -hmm. to burnout where you're not actually learning, you're just doing things rotely and not mm -hmm. changing and not learning from mistakes? So there's a very fine line between and balance between the amount of work and the sh and the stress of that work and and your learning experience. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree with you at all. More residents, particularly in our program, we're a small program, would definitely mm -hmm. better to sort of spread the spread the the love, so to speak, yeah. right? especially on the call schedule. Mm -hmm. So I do believe that we're too small a program for mm -hmm. for where we are. Um, and so actually, we are still we are looking to expand. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some realistic means by which we are hoping to do that for even for next year. So yeah, yeah. So we're, so mm -hmm. you know we're kind of talking about like an ideal world, and mm -hmm. we've touched on it briefly. But like, what? influences us not being able to achieve an ideal residency like what realistic you know probably it's like economic factors or mm -hmm. other factors impact and probably give you headaches on a day-to-day -day basis well i mean yeah i mean i mean the, i we can be really really based in reality and really the, the thing that prevents sort of the expansion of faculty and the expense expansion of residency is money mm -hmm. right and you know and so um finding a funding source to pay a, for a decent salary for a resident because there are some programs that have better benefits than others and mm -hmm. that's a selling point. And, we, and I'm, I hope that we're one of the ones that had the better benefits, but I could be wrong, mm -hmm. um, is, you know, how do, we get, how do we get these things paid? And the other thing is, is it, there's more to it than that. There's also the match. And there are programs that make an argument to the ACGME and to their funding sources that they need extra spots. But then this is not happening in psychiatry now. But this happened years ago when psychiatry was not as competitive. 
is that if you don't fill those spots, those spots get eliminated and oh. it's very difficult to get them back. Makes sense. It's very difficult to get them yeah. back. Psychiatry is not having that problem right now, although child psychiatry is actually. Um, there's a lot of unfilled okay. spots in child psychiatry, which reflects the, the, the deficit in the workforce in mm -hmm. child and adolescent psychiatrists right now. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I mean, psychiatry for the last couple of years is having a very high match rate without, yeah. a ver without very few unfilled spots. I could be totally wrong, but the number I think last year of unfilled spots after the first round of match was in the single digits yeah. across the country. And then the the rest got filled immediately in the soap or the scramble mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it these days. So that did not happen years ago. Psychiatry mm -hmm. was not nearly as competitive. So it's not just the funding, but it's also the uh, maintenance of the spots, but less of a problem now. Yeah. Um, it's also, and I think this is very common in academics everywhere, and it was definitely heightened and significantly exacerbated by the pandemic, mm -hmm. is that academic Pos faculty positions really do come with burnout. Yeah. Not necessarily, but there's a high burnout rate in academics and a lot of people are leaving academic psychiatry and academic medicine because what's happening is that they're getting, you know, faculty is getting paid a certain salary mm -hmm. and some of that comes from the academic institution and then some of that comes from other sources, probably the clinical site that they work mm -hmm. at. And there's a gross underestimate of how much time academics really take as part of your job from day to day. Mm. So everything, and I, I hope this helps, this might help for people seeking jobs, but like everything is done on something called like an FTE scale, which is called oh, full-time okay. equivalence. So mm -hmm. 40 hours a week, technically, although most doctors work more than that. So, you know, 0.2 is one day of work. Mm -hmm. And point and 1.0 is a full-time yeah. week of work. Okay, that makes sense. And so a lot of times, say, if there's a clinician on service who, you know, maybe is 0.8 clinical and 0.2 academic, that means that technically they should have one day equivalent a week devoted to academic work. Mm -hmm. I don't see that happening a lot of the time, and it's definitely not only this institution, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, there's no accountability as to where that FT point two goes. Interesting. Um, and, th and that time does not always get protected because we're mental health care providers and we're busy as heck because there's such a demand and mm -hmm. we have such a high volume of acute patients, both in the inpatient and the outpatient. I'm seeing the sickest patients I've ever seen in mm -hmm. the outpatient, just kind of trying to handle it for them from there. So. Um, I think really then and then so that that allows people to burn out easily because they're really not working 1.0 they're working yeah. 1.0 plus mm -hmm. because they still are expected to academic work I also think that when we ask faculty to teach okay you know an hour lecture okay mm -hmm. an hour so they get they get you know credit for the hour of teaching towards their academic time mm -hmm. but how long does it take for them to prepare that lecture Mm -hmm. 10 hours oh, if yeah. it's a good mm -hmm. one that time doesn't always get accounted for in academics mm -hmm. I'm not saying that for me I, I I've been lucky where I've been because I was doing almost entirely academics for a while I, I mm -hmm. was able to finagle that but not for as you know I had to step back mm -hmm. from some of that um, and so that doesn't always get accounted for so you're working 10 extra hours a week you're doing this hour lecture and then you're really doing full-time clinical people don't want that why would you go into academics mm -hmm. when you can just work an employed position work the same amount of time and not have to worry about it of course and I imagine the yeah. compensation might even be different working for like a private hospital entity kind of thing and yeah stuff. that might be a luring factor yeah and people you might make more you might do more work as a clinician if you're mm -hmm. working in a private hospital or a private clinical setting and you don't have trainees doing some mm -hmm. of the work for you sure you're doing more work there's more administrative work there's more notes but you get into a cadence and get into a rhythm and mm -hmm. it's like it's manageable you don't have to worry about people asking you to take 10 hours out of your week to prepare a lecture mm -hmm. and if you're doing lectures regularly that's that's all that that's multiplied so there's been an exodus from academic medicine and um, and people may not always want to go into it for that reason so I think that's the biggest barrier mm -hmm. um, and the biggest challenge and trying to get people to be interested is they just don't have the time yeah because the time isn't protected um, there's actually a lot of literature on this that's come over out and come out in the last year mm -hmm. about like people leaving academia because of burnout so mm -hmm. we have to fix that. We have to, if somebody needs 10 hours for their lecture, they have to get protected 10 hours, but then it's hard because who's going to cover their time on the clinic exactly. and then they're going to do, that person's going to, 
So that's why a larger faculty can also, just like a larger residency, can probably spread the love around, mm -hmm. right? And so that we can have better coverage clinically so we can protect academic time. Thank you again for tuning into the podcast. If you want to support this podcast, I would greatly appreciate if you check out my other content. What I'm referring to is the books I've made. Yes, books. I've written a children's book as well as a book for adults pursuing any kind of higher education or training. Best way to ch check out these mental health books, go on to Amazon and just search my name. That's Logan Noon, L-O-G-A-N-N-O-O-N-E. Check out one of my books. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, and you kind of touched on this earlier, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about how to improve residency and having to ask certain staff and, and residents too to step up to the plate. Um, and one of the things you did that I found most inspirational this past year was taking a step away from some of your roles. Um, I think something that we all can kind of relate to, you know, putting way too much on our plate and then it ends up being to our detriment. Um, and just so the listeners kind of understand mm -hmm. um, the background, uh, I'm, a, I'm a second year resident last time I checked. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have a lot of medical students who did actually take your course in medical school. And it, it's hard to put into words the amount of positivity <laughs> that they say. They love this course. Um, it's, it's so well uh, reviewed and they had such a good experience for it. But um, you chose to take a step away from it. And, you know, however you want to be open about it, remember I can edit things out of this podcast. Walk me through that decision and, and uh, what happened. I, I'm happy to do that because I like I, it's been very nice to get feedback from you to say how inspirational and helpful it was for mm -hmm. you to, to realize that and and that was part of the reason that it was it turned out to be a positive thing is that there was some good role modeling going on mm -hmm. so that you can so but I, I mean I think I remember very clearly learning in my fellowship in particular when I was starting to take I was you know bright-eyed and bushy-tailed I was in mm -hmm. CL I was at the institution that I wanted to be at and I got really excited and I started taking on too much and my program director, would, you know, I was, there was, I was one of two fellows, so he really got to know us very well. So I'm like, you, you look stressed out. What's going on? And I told him what I was doing. He's like, you really do need to say no. You don't have to say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of really good mentorship and a lot of good guidance. So that kind of planted the seed there. And I you have to practice that. It's very hard to practice, mm -hmm. especially if nothing is offered to you for here and there, right? Mm -hmm. But um, Or if you're just hiring, you don't pursue things for yourself. But it is a skill that many of us who are people pleasers, although I don't know how much of a people pleaser I am anymore, mm -hmm. but I, maybe I used to be. But us in, you know, how much, how us in leadership and in mentorship and teaching, it's, it's a, you really do have to practice it. It's not something that comes naturally. Every time I say no to something, it still feels uncomfortable mm. until I can move on from it. So it's not, it's a skill you have to hone. It is not something that you just can do if that's the kind of person you are. Mm -hmm. And I think I did okay for a while. And a lot of it is about boundary setting. You know, saying no means I'm not going to do this so I can protect this other thing. That's how I see it. It's not I'm saying no because this isn't something I'm interested in or I'm saying no because I don't want to advance my career. I'm saying no because there's something that's more important that occupies that time and space in my life and I, and I have to prioritize that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's more triaging. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I like I said when I started when I started sort of in academics, I got really excited about it. It was fun to sort of run with and develop programs and and look where gaps in education were and fill them in. And there was a lot of opportunities that just came my way that seemed like some ways I couldn't pass up. And then mm -hmm. truth be told, in the during the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, I stepped into roles that I had never planned it to step into. Um, I had just started as program director okay. and so be like two months before or three months before the pandemic hit and so I did not plan on being a program director during the pandemic which had a lot of challenges mm, especially yeah. in the first couple six I can't months imagine, yeah. yeah well I can't imagine for you I, at least I, I wasn't in the hospital yeah. but I, well, the, I, I the second the year class above me I feel like is yeah the COVID exactly yeah you were that's true right? you were a medical class. student yeah a, a little less true. severe yeah you're right you're right I didn't yeah, realize yeah. that yeah no the class the class above you was really it was it was it was straining on mm -hmm. them and straining for different reasons on me mm -hmm. in our program. Um, 
and I have to credit our wonderful coordinator. I could not do this job without her. We, we say that, we yeah. are a package Heather deal. Glenn. She's the Shout best. Out. Yeah. There's, there's, so, you know, we, we really, so there was, that's a whole nother podcast about how to be a program director during a pandemic. But mm. that was on, there was unanticipated stress. There was also a vacancy in the clerkship director position. And okay. I actually remember very clearly that I had an interview with a faculty member on March 30th, 2020. Oh, okay. And on March 16th or March 14th, when the whole world shut down, we said, okay, we're not going to meet. Um, we're not going to do this right now. And um, which was the right decision at the time, but we also needed a clerkship director. So mm -hmm. I, ended, I ended up becoming the clerkship director. Um, and then I was still running two other medical student courses, teaching four hours a week in case-based learning and other, other faculty commitments. And with the conversion of virtual and the, the amount of work that it took to convert a 10-week course from live to virtual or on-site to virtual, there was just mm -hmm. so many moving parts. And then it got to be just too much. Um, and so much, in some ways, is good that psychiatry and academic psychiatry can lend itself to remote working and telehealth. But what happened also is that every second that used to be spent chatting with coworkers and, and commuting to this site and that site, doing clinical here, but teaching in Stratford and being in the car here or there, you know, mm -hmm. got filled with work. Mm. So those 10, 15 minutes here, 10, 15 minutes there ended up becoming filled. And what I might also meant, because I was working from home, what I also didn't realize until I kind of was too much into it was that 10 to 15 minute drive that I have home mm. from this office and from, from the other locations and was a buffer from my, for me mm -hmm. to reset and to chill my brain out because mm -hmm. there's so much noise in psychiatry for psychiatrists. I don't think yeah. people realize that. And you, you might speak to this having, mm -hmm. you know, suffered with what you've suffered with is that our, our, we are mentally working so, so hard mm -hmm. every day just to try to not only figure out what's going on with our patients, but also to moderate our own behavior and how to, you know, we're always vigilant about where, where we need to keep safe in ways that maybe other clinicians may not have to, um, or at least to the same extent. So, I don't think I realized how much that time I was spending in the car or outside of my home when I was working before mm -hmm. was protective. And so I would, you know, during the height of the pandemic, I was I had tons of academic roles. I was still seeing patients doing it all by telehealth and seeing some new patients who like suddenly lost their care and we were one of the only places that were literally up within five hours doing telehealth. Um, and I was working like seven to six mm -hmm. and I literally opened my do doors at home and my children and my family are waiting right mm -hmm. there. My, my buffer went from 10 miles to 10 feet. Yeah. And they're really, and with having three kids at home doing remote school and trying to organize this and organize mm -hmm. that. And I will say I was super lucky that I had a lot of help with mm -hmm. my family, but what happened is I really found over the, that year, year and a half, that all of my energy, physical, mm -hmm. mental, whatever I had, was going into those 10, 11 hours I was working in my office, mm -hmm. and none left at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't good for me, and it wasn't good for my family. And um, really what happened, and I'm very happy to be honest about this, is I went away for our annual vacation mm -hmm. in the summer. It was two weeks. We always go away, same place, two weeks every year. It's our tr family tradition, mm -hmm. look forward to it. Um, and I did. there was that year where I decided that I needed to make a change. I did not get that sort of, that respite mm -hmm. that I usually get from that trip. And there had been years past, two weeks away with three kids is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's just put it that way. And most years before that year where I changed my trajectory, mm -hmm. I was ready to go back to work. Mm -hmm. Like by the end of those two weeks, I'm like, throw the kids back in camp. I need to go do something adulty. And I did not have that feeling. Mm -hmm. I could have taken another month off and mm -hmm. still not have felt refreshed. Mm -hmm. And I said at that point when we came home, and I have a very supportive husband and a very supportive family, that I said, I can't, I can't sustain this anymore. And I really sat down. It took me several months to come to the decision that I needed to step back. It was a very, very difficult decision because um, it was very nice for you to say that the students give me good reviews and give my course good reviews. Um, I'm aware of that. 
and I'm aware of how much hard work and effort it goes into making something good and high quality. Mm -hmm. And I think the first step in sort of me getting to the decision that I made is that I needed to trust that somebody else could do that mm -hmm. and, and say no to that. And that took me some time. Mm -hmm. um, and I needed to say that about uh, some of the other roles that I was doing too, and that took me some time. So this was a decision that I made over several months. And then I gave a very long notice as well because um, I didn't want to leave the, the programs in a lurch. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to complete my work for that academic cycle and then start fresh. In the end, I ended up staying on for residency and residency only because um, I realized that I was having more stress about leaving the residency than anything else. Mm -hmm. And that I loved working with the residency and that I felt that perhaps all of my energy being diverted to other things that weren't as satisfying mm -hmm. that maybe some other people could do. And I can hold my energy on the thing I love the most and I'd be better at it mm -hmm. and I'd be less stressed. So that's what ended up happening. So I pulled back. I actually was, speaking of FTE, I was about like 1.2 or 1.3 FTE. So, okay. so I was way over yeah, full yeah, time yeah. on paper. And so pulling that back and now I'm just half time doing residency and I do other clinical work. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a much happier person. But it was, a, it, was, it was a combination of not saying no earlier on. Mm -hmm. It was a combination and, and of the, that, and then also not being able to say no when the pandemic hit and we were all on crisis mode, mm -hmm. which lasted much longer than I think we realized, yeah. much yeah. longer. Mm -hmm. And um, then saying yes to the things that had most meaning to me, mm -hmm. like staying on for the residency and other things. So I hope I answered your question, but yeah, you it, absolutely took, did. it took a lot of time but also support from those around me mm -hmm. in my world to, to help me realize that it's okay to delegate and it's okay to say no and the world won't end. Yeah. And it can... Um, and like and you're that, not a piece of crap for saying no. Exactly. And it's, yeah. then I was like, you know, I'm a total hypocrite because I work a lot with perinatal uh, peri, um, patients mm -hmm. and new moms and new parents. And I say all the time, I say to them, because they're always saying, well, what about the baby? What about the fetus? What about this? No, I always say, it's like, you know, like the record breaking line is that if you're not well, no, none of the system around you is well. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not well, how can you feed the baby properly? If you're not well, how's your husband or your partner or whoever you're with going to be able to support you? Like, you know, or know what you need if you're not well enough to express to them, you know, what you need. I'm always saying like, you have to be well so that the system, you know, they're well around you. They won't be well unless you're well mm -hmm. or whatever, as well as can be. Why wasn't I saying that to myself? Yeah. And so that took some time as well. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing that, you know, beautiful story. And, and I don't know if you realized it at first, but it definitely, at least on me, had a big impact on just my approach to, to medicine and, and I can share some things, you know, this, mm -hmm. I've, I felt tremendously guilty that I don't do my podcast more frequently, mm -hmm. guilty that I don't um, continue my creative endeavors with maybe another book or whatever. I always just feel this impending sense of guilt and that I'm not doing enough kind mm -hmm. of thing. And, um, you know, you and uh, you helped me get uh, the American Psychiatric Association Leadership Fellowship, which I'm super stoked about. Congrats, like, so proud of you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, but that being said, there's a million of opportunities um, through that program too. And so I kind of, them have also been felt, oh no, I'm not doing enough. I'm not taking advantage of this wonderful opportunity enough. And through you taking a step back, it really inspired me like, okay, like, saying no is actually sometimes just as important if not more important than jumping on opportunities mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of family moving parts in my last year and what I've kind of realized like first year of residency for me was more learning medicine and dealing with that overwhelming feeling at all times that's you know I don't want to go back to intern year and now second year moving forward I feel like now it's like learning to live with medicine you know, I don't mm, get as mm -hmm. caught up with the medicine as much. I, of course, have a little bit better understanding. But, you know, what's my day-to-day -day like, you know, and saying no? And how can I, you, you highlighted like that, that break you have in the day. Um, the commute that I have for work is really important to me. And, and also trying to develop hobbies that have zero to do with any medicine. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've taken up surfing in this last year and be awesome. able, being able to, like, manage the family stress with that. 
Um, and I don't know if I would have been able to do that transition as easily as you know a role model who's a program director is saying like I'm taking care of myself um, and I think all the rest of our residents and hopefully you know applicants coming on too even if you don't end up at this residency will kind of take that to heart I hope so that's really nice to hear because mm -hmm. I was really more frankly afraid that you would all be very angry with me mm -hmm. but like you know but in the end I decided to stay and and devote you know and to devote myself to the to this program and I think it was it's better for everyone and there's been other residents that said to me Good. that they that's been helpful um I know you wanted to ask if we have time about sort of like what it I well I don't know if this is one of the questions but like what a lot of students ask me this question when they're interested in psychiatry or when they're like first years and they go through the course and then they're like I really want to do psychiatry but like how do you separate yourself Mm. from like all the heaviness and from all the mm -hmm. from all the trauma that you experience secondhand by hearing some of these patient stories and how do you mm -hmm. leave at the end of the day if you had a really bad day and there was a very violent patient and it was scary and all that like how do you mm -hmm. let go <coughs> and and I and I say it's it's really it's really healthy and I think it's good to have boundaries on your professional life mm -hmm. and between your personal and between your personal life and your professional life mm -hmm. and it's really really hard to do that in your first year and yeah. I, but I love what you just said about like instead of being, like living in medicine, like living with medicine. Mm -hmm. It just has to become part of your life. It cannot be all of your life. And there will be times during your training, and also obviously in your career, where the balance, where the percentage might be a little bit different, mm -hmm. depending on the circumstances and what it calls for, and even from month to month and rotation to rotation. Mm -hmm. But the important part is to create those spaces for yourself that have nothing to do with your professional life, mm -hmm. so that you can restore and refresh and like remind yourself that you're not just a psychiatrist but and that you don't have to help everyone in every minute of every day that you're allowed mm -hmm. to be helped and you're allowed to be an individual person so I talk about like compartmentalization as a good defense mechanism and really setting that boundary and I was a, I fell victim to it mm -hmm. um, due to some unforeseen circumstances and some of it was my volition but I think it's really so I'm I love that you're taking up mm -hmm. surfing I'll tell you that like I I, <laughs> I love TV and movies you never not got to know um, Dr. Denny Senko, but he was a, an attending here, actually the associate program director here for a brief period of time. He was my fellow and uh, when I was a resident and we've become friends, he's a brilliant CL and headache psychiatrist down at, in, in Center City. And he once said to me, he said, you watch a hell of a lot of TV for such a smart <laughs> person. But the thing is, is I watch no medical shows. Uh -huh. That's sense. where my boundary is. I used to love House and I used to like mm -hmm. Grey's Anatomy. Don't put a medical show on TV. It will, I want nothing to do with that. And there I think they're sort of recognizing, I mean, it sounds very simple, but I think recognizing where that boundary is and really creating space for yourself to have a, fulfilling life outside of work you can be fulfilled professionally but that does not you have to have a, something else fulfilling personally mm -hmm. and sometimes the more separate those are the better it depends on the person but mm -hmm. that's what I'm like like I have to read you know I like to read books for psychiatry but there's nothing better than like a romance you know not mm -hmm. a romance novel but I like I like I like fiction I want mm -hmm. nothing to do like I don't want to sit down and read yeah. Kaplan and I mean, I think anymore me, so you know I think for me, it's it's uh, you know it's easy for to preach to our patients therapy. You know, if meds are appropriate, fine. I of course take meds. I'm open about it for my bipolar disorder. But um, you know, earlier this year, I don't even know when it was. Maybe six, nine months ago, I was attacked by a patient, mm, um, and I, I did remember. have some PTSD symptoms from that. And I think willing one willing to engage with a therapist and discuss that. And I I still engage with a therapist from time to time. I think you just one that that's kind of easy though. But for me, I think um, there's no substitute for intense exercise. I agree. Um, that was know. actually, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. That was actually, even at the height of things being uber, uber stressful mm -hmm. for me, where I really couldn't find that balance, I never gave up my exercise. Mm -hmm. I would get up at 5, 5.30, and I made sure that I got that in, because if I didn't have that, I actually didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it's... That not only for self care, but also obviously for the physical and emotional benefits that it has. But it's interesting you say that because I, that was the one thing I couldn't give up, or yeah. nor was I willing to. And actually, I will say in retrospect that what happened is when really what ultimately pushed me to make the decision mm -hmm. is that when I was at the height of my stress and I was really thinking about the change, but I wasn't ready to commit, mm -hmm. I started to lose exercise tolerance. Mm. I found that I was performing 
at a certain level for a certain time and even progressing. And then I, over a period of not even weeks, but days, my tolerance for the same amount of exercise dramatically dropped. I actually got worried. I went to the doctor. Oh, I wanted to make sure I didn't have a cardiac issue or a thyroid issue. And he's like, it's, pr it's all stress. Interesting. And so I was like, I can't compromise that. This yeah, is yeah. important to me. And so that actually helped me make the decision and move forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and, you know, for me, like, I feel like all psychiatrists and therapists and, you know, psychiatric nurse practitioners, whatever, we hear some stories that truly, like, turn your stomach and, like, just hmm. almost have, like, a visceral reaction because they're so horrific. Um, and I'm not sponsored by Apple Watches, <laughs> but like, here's where I'm going with this story. Like, I really have enjoyed working out with some kind of fitness watch because mm -hmm. I can tell if I'm being a little softy. Me too. And and so <laughs> that's why I use the word intense. Like, I through dealing with those horrific memories of the stories that the that I hear from my patients, I have to reach a certain level of intensity, and that's when my mind can finally clear. Like mm. when I get angry that. Um, you know, I have a patient that lost his son at 10 days old, you mm. know, taking it out on a deadlift um, is so much better than coming home and, and just like venting to my wife and unloading on her and, and or, or even internalizing it yes. and then projecting it. And we do the same thing. We do the same things even when we're well mm -hmm. that our patients are doing. It's mm -hmm. where we all have human psyches. So, um, yeah. So it is a, it's that it's a healthy way to deal with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in. It means so much to me. If you want to help out this podcast, one of the best things you can do is leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps kind of move me up in the algorithm or whatever, helps me get more listeners, and I would really appreciate it. So if you could leave a review, five-star review, whatever you can do to show some love, help us in that good old internet algorithm, feed into the matrix, I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in. Um, so I only have you for another maybe five minutes-ish or so, so let me just try to rapid fire. Um, sure. What it, mm, nah, we answered that question, that one's boring. <laughs> um, okay, what makes you super excited about psychiatry? What are you like super stoked about, mm. excited about moving forward? Mm. I wonder, That's a good question. I, I should have thought about it more, but I, a couple things actually, they're clinical, mm -hmm. if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're at a time or a precipice, although I think every generation may say this, where we're looking to look, we're starting to really consider physiologic mechanisms of different substances and, and medications that, um, that we haven't considered before. So I'm not like, I don't want to get. I don't want anyone to get the impression that I'm like super on board with the psychedelics. But there's mm -hmm. some very interesting literature out there mm -hmm. that I think might change the landscape for us in the next ten to fifteen years clinically. For some, especially for the treatment resistant yeah. patients or the medication resistant patients, um, and there's a lot of you know durability in in ways that we see with some of the psychedelics that we have don't see with our standard antidepressants and like I said I, I'm not there are some people out there that are pushing this and and way on board I'm not necessarily that person but I think the fact that we have been thinking about the this and looking at it in controlled ways and incorporating mm -hmm. it with psychotherapy is like very different than what you know what I you know 10 years ago when I was yeah, yeah. I, and also in women's mental health we're really you know you know, traditionally, we were using the standard SSRIs for postpartum depression mm -hmm. um, and perinatal depression and perimenopausal depression. And while there is some intimate really and complex relationships between the female neurosteroids and hormones with serotonin, we're looking at other compounds that seem to be very promising that really target the physio the potential physiology, like allopregnanolone and the analons mm -hmm. like that in in perinatal depression. And, and, and you know, and so we're looking. A little bit more outside the box but not not so outside the box mm -hmm. and I think there's inklings and trickles of really novel treatments that m I'm really hoping will pan out to be as good as we might think they are right now mm -hmm. and safe and accessible mm -hmm. you know ten years from now the landscape might be very different um, I you know and and I think in psychiatry we are always striving to understand you know not only psychologically and, and physiologically but psychodynamically 
um, new ways of understanding what we're seeing from day to day mm -hmm. um, in pathology. And I think there's just the more he good heads we get into the field, like the more discussions we have mm -hmm. and the more conversations we'll have, and it'll make the landscape for us and our patients just more enriching. So, I mean, this sounds really hokey, but I'm also really ex excited to be part of the the mechanism to expand the workforce, right? Like mm -hmm. I love being a program director and training psychiatrists so that we can put you out in the world and then you can help more people. Because as you know, especially in the United States, there's just not enough of us to meet the need. Yeah. And yeah. So, um, so both from like a treatment perspective and a psychopharmacologic perspective, there's exciting things going on. But I really, really love being like a cog in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the machine of, of processing good and highly trained you know, quality psychiatrists, because there's a lot of not quality doctors in general yeah. out there. Mm -hmm. I want quality psychiatrists out in the field so that we can really, really, really help the people that need it the most, and we're not doing that right now. Um, so, pharmacology and expanding the workforce. I'm excited yeah, about this. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'd agree. With, I think the thing that gets me most stoked about psychiatry is we live in America. It seems like this is everywhere, right, where everyone wants short-term solutions. I just got, mm. you know, I'm, I'm one of my rotations right now is inpatient clinic. I ask patients, do you feel better that you've been on day six of Lexapro now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, and, and having to educate them that that's maybe just a placebo effect. Mm -hmm. and that it's a, like short-term solutions, psychedelics being one of them, but maybe TMS, maybe yeah. um, some of the neurosteroids that you alluded mm -hmm. to, or I'm not sure, but anything I think short-term for psychological interventions is something I get super stoked about because I don't think you know, patients are dealing with so much pain that they want it to be resolved quickly. Right. And we know um, that like benzodiazepines aren't the answer and they mm -hmm. do have a time and they do have a place and uh, there are some people that ad are adamantly against them and I, I'm not. I, ha I prescribe them often actually but mm -hmm. they are not what we need and they're not what we're looking for and we know that they can create more problems than mm -hmm. solutions and so yeah so it's nice to be looking for, I agree with you, to see if there's more sort of short-term solutions or really decreased latency for response. Mm -hmm. They might be long-term solutions, but if we get people better faster, like, you know, every time I have a conversation with a patient about like, oh, you know, I think this medicine might really work for you. It's called Prozac or, yeah. and but it'll be take four to six It will work weeks. in a month. <laughs> yeah. Maybe at the right dose. And like, you have to take it every and time. And like I said that and to And you might not want to have sex again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I said that to a patient this morning and she goes, oh, I know. And yeah. I'm like, I know too, like I don't know what to yeah. say. So, yeah. you know, we, we're, it's different than in other fields of medicine where, you know, um, if somebody is hypertensive or emergency or urgency and we give them IV, you know, beta blockers and within mm -hmm. a half hour or an hour we can get their blood pressure down, like wouldn't that be great if we can do something like that, but mm -hmm. have it last? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we do that with some medications now, but we know that the response rates are not necessarily what we need them to be. So there are exciting things happening, like you know, with this new compound Zoran alone. They're you know, um, the pharmaceutical company that's putting it up. I have no, um, no. We're not getting paid yet. by this. We're not getting paid by yet. this yet. Yeah. Yet. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, put in for FDA approval to have for for standard major depressive disorder for a two week a mm -hmm. two week course. That's it. Mm -hmm. you take it for two weeks and you feel better and it sustains. Um, we see that a little bit with TMS. After six weeks, we see mm -hmm. some durability that once the TMS ends, ECT, same thing. Um, but we don't have that accessible to the majority of patients in our, in our, in our practices who are on medication mm -hmm. or something oral, right? So it's an interesting so, time. Last question, and yes. then, I'll, then I'll stop occupying your afternoon yeah. here. Um, what, <laughs> what is your biggest headache in psychiatry? Oh, man. I think it's twofold, but probably part of the same headache. Um, the fact that, I mean, access to good care mm -hmm. for patients is so limited, mm -hmm. um, especially our uninsured, underinsured. I'm not trying to get political here. I'm just stating oh, what we I can think. Get political. <laughs> um, you know, it's just so hard and um, you know the fa so that's one thing so there's not enough but the but the converse to that I think this is the biggest headache is that we don't really have financial parity with the insurance companies mm -hmm. 
So the reason why care, one reason, not the only reason, but one reason care is so hard to access is that a lot of providers don't take insurance because mm -hmm. the reimbursement rate for mental health care is so low. We're not a procedure-based field, so our RVUs, which are revenue, you know, revenue mm -hmm. units that sort of determine what the, how much you're doing in an appointment, are low because we're, most of the time we're just talking, maybe mm -hmm. physical exam stuff, maybe labs, all that stuff, but like we're not doing procedures mm -hmm. by and large um, and so no one no good psychiatrist well I don't want to say that that's not true at all but no not every psychiatrist wants to deal with insurance because they'll, yeah. they won't get paid for their time like we you know we go mm -hmm. through four years of college four years of med school four years of residency sometimes longer for mm -hmm. training we don't want to get paid mm -hmm. you know we want to get paid for the value of our time mm -hmm. and so you know Part of the reason is patients can't access care is because they can't afford it because a lot of well-trained psychiatrists don't take insurance in private practice. Mm -hmm. I'm part of the problem. I, you know, I do a little private practice with the TMS and stuff. I'm part of the problem. I get it. Um, it's hard, and it's really hard turning patients away when they say, oh, I want to see you, and then they say, oh, by the way, I can't afford you. Mm -hmm. Then what do you do? I'll tell you that like it's hard. The same thing goes for psychotherapy. It's very hard to find a psychotherapist that takes an insurance and mm -hmm. like... I've had to recently refer a family member, um, and I, actually, I'll, I'll back up. I'm very open about this. My daughter has anxiety, and I had to find her a child, a child therapist during okay. the pandemic. It took me, and I was super vigilant and yeah. super attentive. I got quite obsessive about it, actually, mm -hmm. to find a good one that I thought you know, would meet her needs, not just any old person. Mm -hmm. It took me like 20 hours of work and phone calls, and wow. I made a spreadsheet. And I did find, I eventually, and to, and to not have to wait six months yeah, for an appointment yeah. and um, the average I hate to say it but the average person isn't going to do that mm -hmm. to find a therapist yeah exactly they and, just won't and find a the therapist expertise that you have yeah yeah I mean I pulled strings I mm -hmm. asked people like I I was really lucky mm -hmm. and I was able to get her an appointment and I'll tell you that she did well and then we had to then things started coming back and then we had to get her back in and I was looking for a different therapist um, for some reasons nothing terrible but um, and again, six month wait list, nine month wait list. What I ended up doing is I asked for another therapist in the same practice and they didn't make me, because it was within a certain time frame. I didn't have to wait for an appointment. We were able to get mm. an appointment within the same practice. But if I really decided I wanted to leave that practice, we were screwed. Interesting. So it's really hard to access care. Yeah. Both because of insurance, and because of insurance, but it's both ends, right? Patients may not have good plans they may not have the finances and on the other hand the therapists and the other mental health care providers can't afford not can't afford to take insurance if they want to make mm -hmm. a living so yeah. it's 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 I don't have any answers or solutions I'm in some ways I'm part of the problem mm -hmm. um, but this is the state of it now so it does it's a lot it is a lot of headaches yeah, and and, and I want to end it on such a negative note. No, it's okay. <laughs> I'm going to end it on a negative note. Too. Maybe maybe it'll be our follow up episode because I would say my biggest headache. You know, granted, I'm in a very different role, but is uh, dealing with involuntary commitments because mm. I feel like our intentions in the right place, but I always wonder like, are we causing more harm than good? Right, because um, it does have repercussions. Exactly, and like you know, is this turning this patient off? to the mental health system as a whole because I'm forcing him here or, yeah. her, or whatever, you know? So it's, it's, I have extremely mixed feelings about it. Um, and I'm actually just reading an article from the APA magazine about all the social determinants mm. of psychiatry. And I don't feel that I have the adequate skill set to, to truly address that. And so maybe that'll be our follow-up episode. Okay, yeah, yeah, sounds yeah. good. That was about an hour. So thank you so much. Um, if you like, Dr. Rachel Schmutz, <laughs> please apply to this program because we're pretty badass. Um, so yeah, anything else you want to share before I hit end here? Apply to the program, but we're competitive, I'll say. There we go. We, there we, go. Yeah, we don't take any Joe Schmutz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Excellent.